Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit cjsw.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the city of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcast in bloom. Welcome back to Hearsay, a joint project between Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter, and CJSW 90.9 FM, where University of Calgary law students discuss a variety of legal topics with a variety of professionals in the field. My name is Emily, and today's episode is a continuation of last month's podcast, where Amanda and I interviewed Justice Paul Jeffrey to explore the court systems in Alberta and Canada. For those of you just joining us, Justice Paul Jeffrey was appointed to the Court of King's Bench of Alberta in 2009 and has been serving ever since. He has also been appointed to the Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories and to the Nunavut Court of Justice. Before his appointment, his legal practice concentrated in the energy and environment sectors, advocating for clients before tribunals and their reviewing courts. We like to emphasize that the information you hear today is legal information and not legal advice as we are law students and not lawyers. This podcast is purely for informational purposes, and if you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. Additionally, in the spirit of reconciliation, we would first like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kanai, Pikani, and Siksika as well as the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. How, I mean, I I think I can expect the answer as being, it depends, as we usually hear, but how long does a case generally take to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada? I'm sure the correct answer is it depends. My answer is, I don't know. I would be surprised if the Supreme Court of Canada does not have in its constating statute Uh, a time limit uh, within which you must apply for leave or submit your appeal if you're appealing as of right. So one of, I've said that phrase a few times, Uh, an example as having an appeal as of right is if it is a criminal matter and the appellate court, so in our case, the Alberta Court of Appeal, rendered a split decision, two to one. So where there is a dissent, the party that lost can appeal as of right to the Supreme Court of Canada. But if you follow the Supreme Court of Canada's decisions and their motions, you'll see invariably that parties apply for an extension of the time to appeal, and the court will say, we grant extension of the time to appeal, but we deny the right to appeal. Or we extend the time to appeal, and we grant the right of appeal on this issue, or these issues, or something like that. Not everybody needs an extension, but it sure looks like a lot do. 
And they have that discretion at the Supreme Court of Canada. That's probably the most I could tell you about that. So is there a governing body that oversees the Canadian courts to make sure they're operating well within their limit? It's called the Canadian Judicial Council. Uh, and that is a body comprised of the chief justices of every court, every jurisdiction in the country, superior jurisdiction in the country, and the appellate courts, and any associate chief justices of those courts. And so I think in total, it's roughly 41 people. So, so these are the top uh, judges usually in the country. Um, certainly from an administrative perspective, but they don't get that role if they don't have um, something on the ball in terms of their acumen as judges. They uh, do a number of things, but one of them is they hear complaints from lawyers, from litigants against judges, and uh, they convene their own process when they feel it's warranted uh, and have the ability to recommend to Parliament a consequence. So our appointments as judges of courts of superior jurisdiction are made by the government of Canada, most often the minister of justice. For one of those associate chief justice or uh, chief justice positions, it is the prime minister who has that uh, right to make that appointment. And so they are uh, made by order and council to take effect. In other words, an act of parliament. And to remove someone as a judge also takes an act of parliament. But the range of recommendations or consequences can go beyond just removal from office, particularly during the process in which the complaint is being considered. Um, most often, the judge will be taken off active sitting duty. And to my knowledge, not ever in our history has Parliament uh, taken the step of removing a judge from office. That's not to say the process doesn't work. What happens most often when it comes to that extraordinary uh, recommendation, and, and since I started sitting in 2009, I can think of more than a handful of cases where it has been that recommended. The judge chooses to resign rather than have an act of parliament removing you from office or being the first in history. Yeah, so there is that, that process for relief. Of course, if someone doesn't like a decision we've made, that's not a matter of complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council. That's a matter of an appeal. You can say the judge didn't proceed fairly. The judge didn't let me finish my argument. The judge didn't, whatever the concern is, the judge was wrong in the law. And I happen to know the judge worked 25 years in front of the National Energy Board and knows nothing about whatever it is. And so they uh, can appeal on the merits to the Court of Appeal and if we erred in law, the decision will be reversed. The Court of Appeal has the jurisdiction to replace the decision with their own correct decision. If we have made an error of fact, the error must be most often palpable and overriding, is the phrase in the case law. And so the Courts of Appeal give a little more deference on our findings of fact than our conclusions of law, uh, largely on the basis that we were the ones that heard the witnesses firsthand. We were the ones that had the opportunity to assess the demeanor. There are things that don't come out, pop out of a transcript of the trial. The Court of Appeal will read all the transcripts. They have the opportunity to listen 
but they don't have the opportunity to see the downcast face, the uh, furtive glances, the looking over to someone in the gallery, maybe for coaching, or there are all kinds of different things that happen. Uncomfortable pauses. If you read a transcript, you can't tell if there was a 30-second pause. And if you uh, have an interest in practicing law and you're in a court and that happens, sometimes it's very helpful to just state what is obvious in the room on the record so the transcript records it. You're cross-examining someone and you say, now I noticed, sir, there's a very long pause between my question and your answer. Mm -hmm. Because it's not obvious for the appeal court. So if the Canadian Judicial Council is made up of judges and the council receives complaints and then you know, decides what to do with those complaints, wouldn't someone be concerned with, you know, if the judges are evaluating the demeanors or the conduct of other judges? It's just a big club. We look after ourselves. That's what you're wondering? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, in fact, it's my observation that we're hardest on each other. I, I have no doubt about that. Uh, and judges in Canada try so very hard to do it right, to be fair, we would covet the rest of the story that the lawyers aren't telling us. We'd like to know everything. But the lawyers are careful to present to us the things which can be admissible in court, which are reliable, which aren't maybe uh, prone to mislead. And, and so on the basis of what's in front of us, we try very hard, very conscientiously to make the right decision. Uh, and we know just how much is riding on it for the parties. And so these 41 or so people at the Canadian Judicial Council have been doing that for a long time themselves before they got to their position. Um, and, and they feel like someone sort of let down the side. If the things in the complaint are true, we want to you know, sanction that. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about how the courts work, what resources do you recommend for them? Uh, our courts are on the public record. Our courts are available to the public in 99.9% of the chance, uh, occasions. Uh, the first and greatest thing you could do is come down to the courthouse and um, watch. Uh, there's a range of things happening in provincial court and the Court of Queen's Bench every day of the week, every week of the year, except maybe Christmas. Um, the Court of Appeal is also equally available. They have more limited – it's not every day of the week, but they will convene uh, appeal hearings uh, in groups uh, of a week at a time, sometimes two, uh, and uh, those are open to the public. So that's the first thing you should do. With the internet search engines, there's diverse ways that you can search by key terms, and there are decisions of courts kept online that are readily accessible. And you can have them arranged chronologically or by most most consulted um, a level of court. Lots of ways you can do it. There's also a, a trade press, uh, lawyers' publications, legal beat writers with most of the major um, media networks, print media and uh, broadcast media. And those I found for the matters I've heard and then seen reported on. I'm surprised just how accurate they are for their limited amount of time they take in part of the trial or just the decision. Very accurate here in Calgary. Amazing. Thank you. So, so far we've talked about the court systems in Alberta and Canada in great detail. 
Now we'd like to narrow the discussion down to the people within these systems, in particular, judges. When we think about who is at court, I think many of us would first think of judges. Yet, judging as a career is still quite a mystery to us. So first we're curious to know how someone becomes a judge. Could you list the broad eligibility requirements an individual would need to have to start off in this career path? Sure. Again, speaking from the process I've been through, which I'm more familiar with, um, it is a different process for the provincial court, but they all start the same way. You have to apply, you asked. There isn't a dispensation from on on high and glowing lights and one person is anointed because the world recognizes their suitability. It doesn't happen that way. You apply. Um, it's a uh, comprehensive application. But you must uh, have been a practicing lawyer for at least, I believe it's 10 years. Uh, but it's not common for anyone to be appointed to the court after just 10 years of practice. It's usually much longer. The federal appointment process, that's what I'm referring to now. So this applies to all appointments by the federal government to courts of superior jurisdiction and to the federal court trial division and the federal court of appeal. There is a uh, single standard questionnaire, 26 pages in length, uh, that you complete. And that then is uh, placed in front of something called a judicial advisory committee. There is a separate committee in each jurisdiction of the country. Uh, it is comprised of the chief justice of that jurisdiction or, in Alberta's case, her appointee, so a judge. Um, that the chief justice of the province appoints uh, and uh, practitioners, uh, usually someone from the law society, a bencher perhaps, members of the public. And so there's a committee that reviews these applications, contacts uh, the first listed references, the first six I think it is, and anyone else they want to consult about it. It's all very confidential. They come to the conclusion either recommended or not recommended. Those are the two possibilities. They provide that determination to the Minister of Justice. Those who are recommended are available to the Minister of Justice to appoint or not, as he or she sees fit. Those who are not recommended aren't available to the Minister of Justice to appoint. The applicant does not know any of the discussions at the Judicial Advisory Committee and does not know the outcome. All applicants receive a letter after the Judicial Advisory Committee has made its determination, recommended or not recommended, and the letter says roughly, my paraphrase, thank you for applying. Your application has now been considered by the Judicial Advisory Committee. You are at liberty to apply again if you are not appointed, but not within the next two years. So if you don't get appointed, you don't know if you were recommended and the Minister of Justice chose other people, not you, or you were not recommended. You don't know. Um, but that is the process. So it's two steps. And that first step really is the check against just political appointments, friends of a party. Because whatever appointing individual, usually a minister of justice with that authority to appoint, whatever may be the rationale they'd like to use, they only have available to them a pool of candidates who have been found recommended, suitable, um, by peers, 
by the participation on the committee of lawyers, by the participation and chairing by a judge in the country, usually a judge of the Court of Appeal, sometimes the Chief Justice of the jurisdiction. And so citizens of the country, I think, can be confident that the political side is out of it. And so maybe when it gets to the minister's desk, maybe they choose one over another on political reasons, but they're still going to be as good a judge as anyone else that made it through that first process. I think that's the rationale behind it. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. Then focusing on you and your story, how and why did you become a judge? Mm. (laughs) Suddenly very personal. Uh, Well, if truth be told, I had an interest in it before I went to law school. It was one of the things that I thought would just be a really interesting job. Um, And I articled at one of the courts of the province and was exposed to the work of the judiciary. I did some work for both the court I sit on now and for the Court of Appeal. And it was my observation that the judges on the court I now sit on had a happier life, kind of. <laughs> I, I and, and I think some of it, this is just my opinion, I mean, the decisions at the Court of Appeal are that much weightier. They're, for all of us, they are, but there, there's more pressure, I think, um, on them, and they don't decide on their own. They deliberate together with each other, and these are very bright minds who may see things differently. And I think they, you know, it's um, it's not always pleasant. You're always arguing with your colleagues, and there's a small number of them. And so maybe that's part of it. I articled to a member of the Alberta Court of Appeal who would laughingly say, the government no longer trusts me to make decisions on my own, so they put me on this court <laughs> to keep me in check. I practiced for many years in an area of law that is intellectually very challenging, very complex. All of the facets of kinds of expertise that go into a National Energy Board decision on what's in the public interest involves issues of engineering, issues of finance, issues of economics, um, issues of accounting, uh, um, issues of the environment, of property rights and indigenous interests in all of these different areas, depending on the nature of the application that we're dealing with. And I found myself not enjoying any economies of scale, if I would call it that. So a criminal defense lawyer can probably pick up the file in the morning and go into court for 10 o'clock and speak to sentence without any preparation because they've done it so many times. They know the leading cases. They've seen facts of this kind of offense over a long period of time. And so there's an efficiency and so on. But it, anyway, I was finding first that I was working late into the evening, the early hours of the morning for every hearing with three-inch thick binders, five, ten of them, Every case, it was a lot of work. And as I said earlier, there's a difference between civil litigation, lawyers going to court, and they go to court when they're ready to go to court, and a tribunal which says, you're all having the hearing start on this day. You're going to be ready. If you're not ready, we're not waiting. We're starting. I had a colleague who uh, was was quite uh, frustrated with uh, a regulatory procedure order because it had the hearing starting the very day in Calgary 
that he was in front of the same regulator in Vancouver on another hearing. And he even wrote and he said, you know, you know, I'm on this hearing. I can't be in two places at once. And they basically said, your client's a big company. They can afford a different lawyer. That's our process. So those kinds of deadlines coupled with my interest that hadn't gone away over the years. I was interested in pursuing it. So that's why I put my name in. Um, we really want to end with your personal experiences. So specifically about um, your experiences of working as a judge, starting with like, what are the, some of the things you like most about being a judge? I really enjoy the diversity of cases. And after doing this for over a decade now, learning that the essential principles of law are really the same across all of the different kinds of cases. So doing the diversity of cases, I think, actually helps us do a better job of each individual case in each kind of law. I've been a curious person by nature all my life, and this is a great job for being a curious person. Uh, and I've always enjoyed puzzles solving puzzles. And many times the cases that come are not unlike a puzzle to be unraveled and to work through as best I can in a systematic way. First, I need to find the facts. Once I know what the facts are, then some of the noise around the law settles out. And then I need to accurately apply the law as it now is. And the law evolves as society evolves. So I, I just find that fascinating. Jury trials are particularly interesting. I think you'll find most experienced judges really enjoy them because there is a unique drama to them. Uh, and many times you can see the jurors, like a judge on the, for they are judges, they're judges of the facts, we're judges of the law in a jury trial. And the jurors will be sort of, if this is a fair phrase, pie-eyed, wide open, eyes wide open, and interested and not sure what to think and to see how they react to different behaviors of counsel to different witnesses and and to see how their demeanor changes if it's a longer trial so i've had a jury trial six weeks long and by the third week you know the jury now know each other very well and they're chummy and it's it's just a different kind of experience and trying to anticipate what their verdict might be and i'll tell you sometimes i'm grateful that I don't have to make that decision. It's a very difficult decision for jurors. They have to be unanimous, and it is a great service that people do. Sometimes the things they see and hear, like us every day, stay with you. They're things you wish you never had to hear and experience. Some of the unseemlier sides of society, and uh, for a juror to be exposed to that, it's very abrupt and they may not have the personality that would apply to say, I'd like to be a judge. They've, you know, they're selected at random from society and then from random, from a group of that society that's come in response to a summons for possible jury duty. And, and it can be very hard for those people. We do offer, uh, the, gov the Alberta government offers some uh, counseling assistance too for people that have had to experience very relived traumas. And while on that thread, what do you think are some of your biggest challenges? Um, to be candid, it is assessing credibility. 
it is still the hardest thing to do. And there's a great body of uh, applied social psychology out there where, where academics have studied abilities to assess veracity. Boy, I'm going back to my first year where I heard one of them present to me in a session of judges. Um, the ability of the average person on the street to know if someone is lying to them or not is roughly about 50%. In, in other words, there, there's no ability to do it. People like lawyers and policemen and judges have this self-perception that we can do it better than the average person. And the statistics don't bear that out. The most interesting thing to me was the demographic that these uh, studies found most able to assess whether someone is telling the truth or not. It's sociopaths. Sociopaths. So there's something about the two sides of the brain, I think, that enables some people to not fall prey to what might mislead us. The most reliable way for us to determine credibility is not by looking at how a person presents the evidence. There can be cultural explanations for, say, some cultures don't look people in the eye if they're a person in authority. And traditionally, we might infer from that they're hiding something. They won't look me in the eye when they're saying that. And it's not reliable. It's not accurate. The most reliable way of assessing credibility is by comparing their evidence to their own evidence, first of all. If there are inconsistencies, is there a reasonable explanation for the inconsistency? There could be. Uh, is it, you know, they've been testifying for three days and uh, maybe they're not remembering what story they wanted. To. So is it internally consistent? Secondly, with other evidence in the trial from other sources. It could be documentary evidence. It could be testimonial evidence. Um, and, and to look for those things. And it can be the plausibility of what is being said. I had a trial um, involving the malfunction of some plumbing parts in a new home. Within months after its construction and occupancy, the owners went on an extended vacation. And while they were gone, one of the pipes leading to a tap had ruptured, had burst on the top floor. And for the whole time they were gone, the water was, as water does, ruining the drywall, ruining everything in the floors below. So it was a substantial claim. Uh, and the explanation from the experts was a particular ring, a ferrule, I learned it's called, that is uh, works by friction fit. And it's not um, completely symmetric. So it has a narrow, a tapered end and a wide end. And it's basically rammed into place to hold in place. But if you put it in the wrong way, it doesn't hold. And the defendant testified recalling the installation. I installed that. I remember how I installed it. I always installed it the same way. And soon as I heard that there was this failure and catastrophic loss, I went on site and I was permitted to look at the part that failed. And I looked at that for rule and I saw that it was installed correctly. So here's the problem. When you look at the ferrule, you can't see the inside, which way is tapered and which way isn't. So I knew that couldn't have been reliable. But there was nothing about the way he testified. He was very upfront. And you know, he may have recalled seeing it a certain way, but his recollection was in error. 
There's a difference between credibility and reliability of the evidence. And so he came across as credible, but his evidence was not reliable because it was an impossibility. I do find that the hardest, particularly in matters of family law, where there may be an issue about a parent wanting to relocate miles and miles and miles away and take the children with them. Up to that point, the children have been shared between the parents and their different homes, week on, week off, perhaps. Both parents are good for the kids. The kids are flourishing. They're doing fine. But what's in the best interest of the children based on their evidence? And then having to tell one of the parents, you know, you've not done anything wrong. You're within the range of reasonable parenting styles. It's really good. I just find it's in the children's best interests to stay here or to go. And um, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Then uh, finally, considering, you know, the things that you like most about being a judge and, you know, your biggest challenges, what kind of goals do you have for yourself as a judge? To be current, to to keep up with the law. Uh, And for me... Unlike when I was in practice where I had to keep abreast of a broader range of laws because of the diversity of my practice, um, I need to pay attention. It is a wide range of subject areas, but I need to pay attention to everything the Supreme Court of Canada decides and everything the Alberta Court of Appeal decides. Uh, It's not that the other appellate courts in the country may not have dealt with an issue that comes in front of me, um, but when I get a specific case... I will seek that out if the lawyers haven't already provided that direction to me. Um, But I feel I need to be on top of those court decisions which are binding on me. I do not have a discretion to stray from those. So that, I think, is goal one. Second goal is for everyone that comes in front of me to feel that they've been heard. I do not shut people off. And I found with self-represented litigants that they will go on about many things that are irrelevant. And I know from some of my colleagues, they they get a bit impatient with that and frustrated with that. Understandably so. I strive to let them talk because I found from experience that in what they're saying, there may actually be something very relevant. And if I say, actually, sir, that has no relevance. And, And the lawyer on the other side might be saying, can you stop this? You know, we're wasting the court's time. We're wasting all our time. This has nothing to do with, and it's prejudicial and so on. And I err on the side of letting people speak because I have found on occasion that there's something in what they say that is terribly relevant that they didn't know was relevant. The other side didn't ask, and it it's very helpful in reaching a just outcome. But it's important to me, it's important to all the judges of our court, really, for the participants to know that they've been hurt, and if they lose the case, to understand why their arguments were not persuasive. So we do try to write, by and large, for the losing party. We may not address every single issue that was argued, particularly if the the winning party argued some other issues. We don't need to. We want the loser to understand why it wasn't persuasive, why the other side was. So those are probably the top two things. This concludes our two-part episode of Exploring the Court Systems in Alberta and Canada with Justice Paul Jeffrey. We'd like to thank Justice Jeffrey again for joining us and for sharing his insight. And of course, we'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
You are listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is information, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter. If you would like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.